When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. And... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps is off listening to The Grapes of Wrath on a 22-hour car ride, but he'll be back next time. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Ghost World, Terry Zweigoff's jaundiced comedy about a graduating senior who tries to sort out her future. Now we're going to bring in Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's semi-autobiographical film about a Catholic schoolgirl from Sacramento who's also looking to adulthood with plenty of trepidation. In the most prominent of several great and unexpected casting decisions, the young Irish actress Shirsha Ronan stars as Christine, but insists on calling herself Ladybird, one of the comprehensive array of quirks that she uses to separate herself from her peers. Ladybird attends a private school, but unlike many of her classmates, her parents can't easily afford to send her there. As she dreams of fleeing Sacramento for an East Coast college, her contentious mother, played by Laurie Metcalf, and her pushover of a father, played by Tracy Letts, struggle to make tuition. Meanwhile, she experiments in the theater, embarks on relationships with two very different boyfriends, and tries to fit in with the popular crowd. Like many teenagers, she's so wrapped up in her own dramas that she fails to notice the pain she's causing and the sacrifices being made on her behalf. But Lady Bird is more about memories and observations than turns the plot. We'll get into all that after the break. Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What you do is very baller. It's very anarchist. Put the magazine back! <laughs> she has a big heart, your mom. She's warm, but she's also kind of scary. You can't be scary and warm. I think you can. Your mom is. No, you're not interested in any Catholic colleges. No way. I want schools like Yale, but not Yale because I probably couldn't get in. <laughs> you definitely couldn't get in. Does mom hate me? If you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. You were dragging your feet. You are so infuriated. Will you stop yelling? I'm not yelling. Oh, it's perfect. Do you love it? You both have such strong personalities. When is a normal time to have sex? You're having sex? I just wanted it to be special. Why? You're gonna have so much unspecial sex in your life. We're afraid that we will never escape our past. Whatever we give you, it's never enough. It's never enough. It is enough. We're afraid of what the future will bring. We're afraid we won't be loved. You can't do anything unless you're the center of attention. We won't be liked. Yeah, well, you know your mom's tits, they're totally fake. She made one bad decision at 19. Two bad decisions. 
and we won't succeed. I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. What if this is the best version? Okay, so Lady Bird, I have a sense of what Genevieve thought of it because I saw it with her. Tasha, you just saw it not but a couple of hours ago. What did you think? Well, I mean, this was my second time seeing it. I saw it at TIFF where I enjoyed it, but honestly, it didn't stand out for me hugely among the 27 other films I saw there Mm -hmm. um, because it's got very much that indie movie kind of role to it, that incident heavy but impact light. I didn't feel like the arc was that well-defined. It is a bunch of stuff that happened kind of movie. Mm -hmm. So I re-saw it tonight just sort of to remind me what those incidents were. And I liked this movie quite a bit. Um, I think Laurie Metcalf in particular is is heartbreaking and brilliant. Uh, it's Shersha Ronan. I'm I'm down for whatever she does. Like yeah. I've seen her in some not great movies, but I still always love her performances. So there's a lot to like here, and I think it's a really strong movie. But I get the impression that you guys are just completely over the moon for it. Yeah, I love this movie. It's my favorite movie of the year so far, easily. But this is one of those movies that like it, it's <laughs> it's hard for me to talk about because it, this movie feels like it was made especially for me. God, even just like preparing for this podcast like i kept like welling up just even like thinking about mm-hmm. this movie again <laughs> so i don't yeah. know how like useful i'm going to be but your, your mic cover is exactly the same color as the cast that she wears on her arm <laughs> yeah. for roughly for 50 percent of the movie yes yeah, so that, that's that's the main reason i identify with her <laughs> <laughs> no but as to what you were saying about there like not being a very defined arc like i i don't really agree with that um there is an arc that like really really stuck with me and was my favorite part of the movie which is the mother-daughter relationship Greta Gerwig's original like working title for this was mothers and daughters like I think the relationship between Lady Bird and her mother that is the element of the film that really stuck with me and still sticks with me now even a, a couple weeks after having seen it in some of the the incidents that have maybe faded in the background but the impact of that moment at the end where Ladybird opens the envelope full of letters that her mother tried to write her and like it just their relationship and the meaning behind it just coalesces it just oh see i'm getting teary again <laughs> i really love this movie <laughs> yeah we'll just get you talked about your mom a little bit uh, even see, see where that goes yeah. um yeah i i love this movie too and it i don't know about a well-defined arc. i don't even really feel like it needs a well-defined arc though it certainly has strong characters and it does lead to this very powerful place that genevieve refers to but one of the things i liked about the movie as well as how it is this just assemblage of very specific memories and the way gerwig incorporates those memories is so graceful and clever. One thing that she really likes to do, and I guess this is something that Baumbach did as well in Francis Ha, is just to take tiny moments and just make little montages out of them. Mm-hmm. So, so you get just tiny little bits, uh, you know, funny things, little observational details, stuff that maybe moves the plot along in certain respects. Uh, you get all that happening in a, in a very quick series of little mini vignettes and um that's something that the film does really well overall i really appreciate the film and if we're going to get personal this thinking about it as a parent you know i mean the the one constant with parenting is you're always trying to get your children to a place where they're thinking about something other than themselves (laughs) And, and, and all of them have different phases of that i mean it can be as basic as is not wanting to share their toys but it also can be you know when you are a teenager and you're really wrapped up in a lot of 
dramatic things in your own life, you don't really see the, the larger picture and being able to get to a place where you can find some perspective is important and it's a constant struggle. And so, so when Lady Bird does finally get to that place and does really see what her parents have had to go through. I mean, that's in, in the sacrifices they've made for her and the things that she's missed, like her father's depression, for example, it just really hits you like a hammer. Does it though? I mean, I like, I think by the end of the movie, she's a little more woke than she is at the beginning of the movie, but she still has doggedly pursued this thing that she has wanted throughout the entire movie and that she's been told over and over and over uh, is going to destroy her mother, is not financially viable for her family, and that she's pursued at all ends. I mean, after a lifetime of movie training, especially with uh, movies for children in follow your dreams, you know, you have to follow your dreams, the importance of following your, your dreams. I don't have a, any argument against that. Like, this is important to her and she pursues it and she pursues it in spite of being told in some fairly negative and selfish ways at times that she shouldn't. But I mean, in the end, it's not like she decides to stay home because that's what her parents can afford or because she wants to help them out or help with her father's depression or, or deal with anybody else's problems other than her own. I mean, her final act is kind of like this selfish choice to to go to the other side of the country, get drunk and end up hospitalized because she doesn't quite know what she's doing. And I don't think that the movie judges her. And I don't think that the movie should judge her. She's young and she's figuring herself out just like the ghost world people. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is I'm not necessarily sure that I see that arc towards seeing her outside of, of herself and, and seeing other people quite yet. Hmm. But I think the growth that we are seeing in Ladybird is about her becoming aware of people outside of herself and people's feelings outside of herself. And mm-hmm. I think the, the, the line that uh, sticks out to me in this movie is kind of like, I guess if you want an organizing principle of the film is uh, Lois Smith's nun, the <laughs> head- headmistress character <laughs> when she's talking with her, who's, a, so who's a great character and has so many great lines. But I think she also does have one of the key lines of the movie, which is when she's talking with Lady Bird about her college admission essay, and she's, which she's written about Sacramento and saying that she has written about it so affectionately. And Lady Bird like kind of balks at that and she says that she just pays attention and Lois Smith says, don't you think they are the same thing, love and attention? And that idea that like love is attention is, I think, kind of the thesis of this movie or whatever. And it's about Lady Bird learning to give that attention to something beyond herself. I think that's a a terrible message. Love and attention being the same thing. I think that's a terrible, terrible message. Oh, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I think... Wait, I'm curious about why. why. Yeah. Uh, Because just noticing a thing doesn't imply a, an affection for it. I mean, it's we talked noticing it though. It's paying attention to it. It's it's like recognizing that someone else is a person and it has their own things going on. Like her reconciling with her friend Julie is like her learning to pay attention to Julie beyond how she fits into her own life. Is it again? I, I is it, to me, to me, her paying attention to Julie is not that much different from Enid going to Seymour. It's she's tried out all of these other things and they've kind of rejected her. And she goes back to the more familiar more comforting and, and more beloved thing. Oh, Scott's making the face. No, but she he, does, he is making the face. But she does. But what about, but the moment that she does that is like, 
is hearing that that song, uh, you know, and, and kind of really getting a sense of like what's really important to her and what you know, and she wants to go to prom and and, and that crappy Dave Matthews song means something to her and she doesn't <laughs> want and she has a whole different way of seeing the world that is that is not in line with these pretentious rich kids um who happen to be right about that song which is really <laughs> bad. um but um well, another point though i think she has these wonderful moments in the film where she actually kind of snaps out of it i'm thinking of uh, one of the more moving moments of the film is with lucas hedges uh who is her first boyfriend and who she catches with a, another boy <laughs> which shocks her and makes her very upset and angry at him and then he comes back to her at the coffee shop and they share this moment where she just instantly recognizes like how much pain is he's mm-hmm. in and, the, and how much and what he's sharing with her and like and it just kind of it, it, it shakes her you, you think that's, that's wrong you think that's I, I'm, I'm gonna say it again does she does she really? Yes. Because I, I mean, what I love about that scene is, okay, so he comes in, she glares at him, and she goes to take the trash out. And her the look on her face is all, thank God I escaped from him. And But he runs out, uh, runs around the building and approaches her, and she looks at him with just this fury. She was trying to dodge him, and he made it impossible. And then he starts talking about, you know, how, please don't tell, I'm so upset. And she reluctantly offers offers him a hug and he oh, no. falls on her and but, starts and you can see her face over his, his shoulder it's such a beautifully acted moment but to me what she's initially doing is just kind of a i didn't ask for this i'm still mad at you and she crumbles but i don't see her Boy. going to him to offer comfort well, but, but we see them uh, and I'll, I'll ask you because it's been a while since i saw it so i i could be wrong but we see them again together we yes. see them together again after that so i think that like that conversation is the incident where the change happens. And the fact that she does reestablish this really meaningful relationship with this friend now, I think is that growth that we're talking about, learning to see someone else for who they are and not how they work in your life. I mean, there I think you're exactly on the money. What what happens is that after graduation, uh, he runs across her while she's out with her family, uh, and he goes to hug her, and she meets him in that case with like enthusiasm and like recognition and friendship, well, think, and that does feel like a, a moment where she's seeing outside herself. I just I think at that moment in the back is it, she instantly recognizes what the deal is with him, and, and that is that changes her in a in a heartbeat, oh, which is what I, it, which is part of what makes that scene so totally powerful disagree. beyond beyond the fact that just. Lucas Hedges is such just a beautiful actor. He's like so <laughs> he's just such a open, vulnerable guy, you know. I mean, you just really feel for him in this performance and of course in, in Manchester by the Sea, he's just like everything is just so on the surface with him. He's incredible. He's really, really good. But I I mean the funny thing is I think we both really like that scene behind the coffee shop, but we're just both reading it very differently. Yeah, totally. For me, like one of the best things about that scene is the way he throws himself on her and starts weeping and like just the the, the choreography of the footwork where the he's bigger than her, he's going into the hug much more forcefully than huh. she is and he drives her back like there's, there's like visibly step by step as she kind of tries to find her footing with this look of incredulousness on her face i love every part of it i just don't see it the way you see it i mean the reading of that interaction is like kind of of a, of a piece with a lot of the interactions with her and her mom like there is this like clashing moment that does eventually lead to understanding but it comes in this very forward like aggressive way you know and that kind of fits with Lady Bird as a character. Like, she is strong-headed. Like, it takes a lot to get through to her, you know? And I think it's, like, the characters who do 
meet her head on in that way that end up like breaking through her own like self-absorption into awareness yeah, really because I, I feel like the person that has the most impact on her in that way is her father he doesn't resist anything that she does he quietly goes along but it seems like it's that that sort of like quiet cooperation that makes her see him as a person well it, it's also the moment of discovering his medication and mm-hmm. realizing that he is he's been struggling with mental illness un, unbeknownst to her that is you know a, a big catalyst in their in their relationship and that is a you're you're right it's not coming from him but it is a similarly like small scale world rocking moment there there was a thing too with in that moment and then the moment when she's called out for having him drop her off before getting to the uh school because she's sort of embarrassed about Mm -hmm. the car they're they're driving about just like where the where the mother's like don't you see what's happening your dad's been dealing with this for a long time he's not going to say anything to you about it but it hurts him you know and and uh, she needs to have that message delivered and and marion has to be the one to play the role of the bad guy and give it to her straight and in in kind of a harsh way of just kind of shaking her and waking her up to the fact and in a way i almost feel like the movie itself is the perspective that the character doesn't quite get right i mean like the whole movie feels like an act of like of full enlightenment that wasn't really possible maybe even at the very end of this movie there's she gets some of the way there perhaps or much of the way there but not all the way there i mean i think it's a a movie about growth not a movie about a conclusion which is why it has such an open-ended ending but now that i think about it listening to your guys translations I'm wondering if what I've been missing all along is I was looking for an arc in Lady Bird. Like I was looking for a a start to finish story in her and not seeing it. I think we do get a pretty start to finish conclusion from her mother's arc Mm -hmm. because the movie opens with, you know, that touching moment where they're both weeping over grapes of wrath. And then like (laughs) three seconds after they're not listening to it anymore, her mother picks a fight with her out of the blue, which Lady Bird escapes by (laughs) throwing herself out of a moving car on the highway. Now to me, that says that she is, she is not unaware that there was a world around her that has an impact on her, but she has already got a pretty forceful personality in terms of escaping it. I feel like what we see with Laurie Metcalf is her pushing harder and harder and in an uglier and uglier ways on Lady Bird. I, to me, the most heartbreaking scene in the movie is where Lady Bird is begging her to speak, uh, to, to mm-hmm. communicate in any way, and her mother's completely freezing her out. That scene made me cry both times I saw this movie. It's it's heartbreaking. And yet by the end, you know, it's the mother who's weeping. It's the mother who sees that she's been freezing her daughter out and that in some ways it's it's too late. And in other ways, it's not because she has she's been trying so hard and the father's been enabling it. I feel like the mom has more of a complete arc of change. I mean, I love all the performances in this movie. I love Lady Bird as a character. But like in a lot of ways, this is Laurie Metcalf's movie for me. Like I've always really liked Laurie Metcalf and watching her in this was just like my heart exploding the whole time. The the scene that did it for me is uh, very close to the scene you talk about, which is when they are dropping Ladybird off at the airport mm. and Marion does not come in. She drops off Ladybird and her father and then, you know, drives around. <laughs> you know, this is right after 9-11 too, which is a fun little observational moment about that moment in, in history. Yeah, that um, car gets towed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> but the shot is shot from the dashboard on Laurie Metcalf's face as she drives around and you just see 
this like internal conversation she's having with herself and realizing what she's done and the it's all there in the face like just in the span of going around the airport once it, it's like a whole monologue is given through her face and yeah. i i love i love that moment it's really great it's really can, great. can we talk a bit about greta gerwig first time director and just the <laughs> first time solo director first time solo director yes. and just like the remarkable assurance that she she brings to this movie for sure. I mean, I think you saw bits of... I mean, Frances High, you have to think about is this almost as a prequel in a way because you, you get bits of her story uh, later in life or in 20s, I suppose, yeah. thrown into Frances Ha. And, and there's some stylistic Oh my God, similars. Frances Ha is totally Lady Bird. Oh, that's so de- I didn't even so think of that, but no. I, I want to think that I want to think that Lady Bird's a little further down her personal <laughs> path of competence than, than Frances well, Ha I mean, she is. She doesn't end up in the hospital at the moment she gets in college, but... In any case, it has that thing in common, but there's just something about this being unmediated by Noah Baumbach's sensibility being entirely a Greta Gerwig film that gives it a, its own quality. It, it comes from a more like, I mean, because Noah Baumbach is a very like kind of East Coast liberal elite background mm-hmm. and that, you know, frequently comes out in his characters. And this is coming from, I think, a more middle class, you know, suburban sensibility. Like Mm -hmm. there's that amazing characterization of uh, Sacramento as the Midwest of California. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's a good point, too. One of the things that I I can't we were thinking of pairings for this and we we had sort of locked in on Ghost World and felt that was a good one, which I think it it is. But I remember right after seeing this movie in Toronto, Mm -hmm texting one of you and saying that, that, that we should pair this with Slums of Beverly Hills. You know, these stories in, in which the trials of adolescence are framed by financial difficulties and, mm. and how that shapes the story in, in really important ways. You know, that's really true here. I mean, you know, in Slums of Beverly Hills, it's like, the, you know, they're moving into these, <laughs> these crummy apartments to stay within the you know beverly hills public school district and here they're just bare they're barely scraping together enough money to keep from going to sacramento's high school where someone got stabbed <laughs> but we didn't pair it with slums of beverly hills we paired it with ghost world and we'll get back to that pairing after the break and talk about the connections between ghost world and ladybird I want to go where culture is, like, like New York, world did I raise such a or at least snob. Connecticut or New Hampshire, really, where writers really live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You can't even pass your driver's test. Because you wouldn't let me practice The way enough. that you work, or the, or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird like Christine. you said you would. Just, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together. And talk about all the things they have in common. I guess we want to. St- I want to start with the period mm-hmm. detail that's put into both of these films because you have this interesting situation where they both roughly take place around the same time. Ghost World was two thousand one, and uh, this is two thousand two and three. Uh, but you know, Ghost World was made in two thousand one, and this was this is kind of a nostalgia piece or, or a memory piece about two thousand two. In 2003. So what, what was that experience like seeing these two films 
together, one that was made in the period and one that was about the period. I mean, as I said earlier, so much of Ghost World is kind of focused on like flashback ideas and like people clinging to all of these pieces of the past that it apart from the music, it barely registered for me as the period that it was in. Hmm. In Lady Bird, it it seems so much more important that we're living in a relatively recent post 9-11 world. The the camera at one point focuses on a a classroom bulletin board that's just 9-11, never forget. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, red, white, and blue, and the flag, and whatnot. And Lady Bird kind of makes the point that maybe she was able to get into one yeah. of her New York colleges <laughs> because 9 11 has people fleeing New York. <laughs> and of course, as you said, the thing about her mother not being allowed to accompany her to the gate at the airport. So, like, it keeps kind of poking us gently about the period. Uh, the soundtrack seems a lot more contemporaneous, almost as though we're focusing on music that was important. Greta Gerwig in that era Mm -hmm. as opposed to focusing on music that was important to Terry Zweigoff as he was like looking back into the past uh, rather than the era that Ghost World was set. Yeah, although the music in Lady Bird for the most part comes from a few years before 2002. I think the only song we hear that is from that year is Justin Timberlake's Crimea River, Mm. um, which is like notably at like the cool kids party. You you know, like Lady Bird's taste and, and the music around her tends to be like Alanis Morissette, you know, or the stuff that's on the on radio, the hits from a, from a few years ago, Dave Matthews' Crash Into Me, which is late 90s. Mm-hmm. That, I think, kind of speaks to like a distinction that you touched on, Tasha, in terms of how these two films approach era, in that Ghost World is much more focused on like esoterica and what was happening like under the radar. And Lady Bird is very much engaged with the, the mainstream of the era. Um, there's actually an interview with Greta Gerwig, I believe, in Rolling Stone, where she says, it felt like the truth of growing up in Sacramento in the 1990s and early 2000s. It was, unless you knew the guy at the record store who had the offbeat taste in the cool record collection, you wouldn't know some of the things I think everybody takes for granted today. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> did, did she know we were pairing these right? movies? Yeah, right. So she's basically saying, unless you were Enid in Ghost World, you wouldn't have known about you know the, what was necessarily you know, hip and cool in 2002. I like how the film sort of explains, too, that that she would listen to the things that she listens to because, you know, when she gets to college, <laughs> her, one of her prospective boyfriends is, like, look, flipping through her yeah. CD collection. It's all gr- greatest, greatest hits albums that he thinks are terrible. Uh, so uh, so these They're are the things that... hits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, which is a really ni- nice touch. Uh, the other point I would make, too, is about the associative qualities of popular songs, even cheesy popular songs. I recall that scene in Almost Famous, the big tiny dancer mm-hmm. scene in On the Bus. It's like all the characters in that film are w- w- too cool for that song. Yeah. Um, at the time, that would be a pretty lame pop song, but they all know the lyrics to it, and it has these strong associative qualities to them and I think you get that in this movie too where this Dave Matthews band song in particular brings back a lot of memories and is part of this deep friendship that she has with her best friend so it's interesting to note that in Lady Bird, I mean, I've, I've talked already a couple times about Ghost Worlds reaching back to the past. Lady Bird feels like it has a little of that as well in sort of these little chunks that feel outside their era, specifically because they're going to a parochial school where <laughs> where the nuns say things like six inches for the Holy Spirit when people are dancing too close. You know, there is this somewhat timeless quality about a parochial school. Mm-hmm. And some of the ways we get that include that 
bizarre homecoming dance that's apparently super cowboy themed and everybody has their full cowboy costumes like <laughs> there's nobody rocking the the sexy cowboy uh kind of offshoot of it yeah. julie has like a full-on prairie girl like <laughs> outfit and ladybird has that uh, i don't even know what you call those super super spangly cowboy shirts you know there are the uniforms there's uh, it's like check the skirt check there's uh getting called on the carpet by the nun to be you know scolded about ha- possibly having a bit of a performative streak uh <laughs> which is a moment i love just because you know she means it as a as a negative and ladybird so clearly hears it as a positive but there are again just all of these little ways in which the story sometimes doesn't feel quite of its time because it's tied to this world where <laughs> things don't move on until you escape from them one thing I wanted to talk about is the characters and their relationship with their hometown. The settings of the two films are so important and so sharply defined, but quite different in their own way. Um, any thoughts on that? The biggest difference is that Ghost World's town is not defined. As, mm-hmm. you know, it's not named as a, as a specific city, um, whereas Lady Bird is very, very specifically about Sacramento, which is uh, Gerwig's hometown. And to go back to that Rolling Stone interview I quoted before, that's really full of a little girl. so smart, you guys. She has like so many good <laughs> things to say about this movie. She says that she wanted with this movie to examine the concept of home and how it only really comes into focus as it's receding. And I thought that was a beautiful way to describe Lady Bird's approach to its setting in particular. But I think it also does apply to a certain extent to Ghost World because, you know, at the end of the film, Enid does leave and she leaves after spending the whole movie nitpicking everything about this place where she lives and like hating everything about it but like in Enid's world it kind of goes back to like that love and attention thing you know like in being so critical of this place she is showing how much attention she has paid to that place you know and how well she knows it yeah I, I mean they obviously both hate where they live mm-hmm. to, to to some extent or another, but through that hatred, a certain sort of affection emerges. I would make a couple of points. I mean, one, I think the end of Lady Bird strikes me as a, I don't know if it's an homage or a swipe, or it reminded me a lot of the end of Before Sunrise. If you recall on Before Sunrise, um, you get this montage at the end of all of the places in Vienna that they visited, and all of those places that they were at are now changed by uh, they have a new context based on the relationship that they've had and the moments they've had in those spaces. And and that's kind of the, a similar effect in, in Sacramento where, where all these locations have, they're colored by meaning based on her experiences living in that town. So those two things sort of combine. Um, so there's that. And the other thing, I, the point I would make about Ghost World is that, I mean, for, for one, Zawagoff really did want it to be in every town. And in fact, on the commentary, he talks about how the, there was a shot where the, the, you could see the word Los Angeles uh, and how, how it was too expensive for them to try to digitize it out of there, get it out of the shot, which tells you just how important it was that it be not in every town. And I think the reason why he wanted to do that is is to suggest in a way that there's no real escape for Enid, that this is the this is not just in every town, this is what America is like. You know, if she goes from one place to another, they're all going to look like this She's, place. The mainstream culture is always going to be there. Exactly. That's what the right. mainstream is. You're right. You know? it's like, it's a, yeah, this this kind of consumerist 
hellscape. I mean, even her f- high school graduation as c- corporate sponsors. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just there's it's inescapable. Which brings me to the ending is so interesting to that movie uh, about like where is she going in that bus? Um, what where does that bus lead to? But I guess that's something a little bit off the track. But uh, <laughs> I think that bus is a metaphor. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought love's attention back in because I I really wanted to look at that concept in relationship to the two of these films. And I think it fits best under this kind of rubric of hometowns and what people think of it. Because I feel like Enid and Rebecca pay a great deal of attention to the every town that they're living in, that they know an awful lot about it and they pick at every single detail of it, but it's because they hate it. It's Mm -hmm. not because they love it. And I feel like regardless of what one nun says, I feel like Lady Bird kind of feels the same way about Sacramento. And she doesn't see it until she's on the the other side of the country. And then she can talk about it poetically and her appreciation of it. But I think that there's a really big difference about the ways that you talk, like, nostalgically and sentimentally about a place that you've managed to escape. I think that 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 process is accelerated for her by homesickness and loneliness and what she's just been through with the hospital. But I do think that there's also a degree to which she couldn't look back on Sacramento and love it until she had managed to escape it and be where Mm -hmm. she wants to be. Yeah, well, I mean, I think nostalgia is the key that turns the attention from one of hate to one of love, you know, and I think that maybe the idea of love and attention is maybe something that applies more to Gerwig in making this film than, you know, Lady Bird's state of mind at the end of the film. And I think there's also a little bit of that nostalgia reading you can apply to a lesser extent to Ghost World and how Enid is feeling at the end and that idea that like, you don't begin to value something until you are pulling away from it. That perspective is so interesting to me because you think about personally, like the places that you've lived and the certain periods of your life and what those places end up looking like in the rear of your mirror are so different from what they felt like at the time. And like, mm-hmm. well, that's consistent. And is that perspective or is it some weird way that you have of compartmentalizing these places and events that, that maybe isn't that truthful? I mean, so many truths are subjective, and I think all truths about, like, your personal experience of your world are subjective. So, like, does it matter? I mean, ultimately, (laughs) like, whether you've hit upon a truth about that place or not, like, your truth about the place where you grew up is inherently going to be subjective to you and whether you see it in a rosy light and or whether you see it in a negative light it's all about your emotional framework and your relationship to the place so there's not really a true or not true there yeah maybe so one thing that plays a major role in lady bird and maybe a subtler one in ghost world is the relationship between our protagonists and their parents domestic problems so that's an interesting connection between the two films now oh yeah for sure i i don't think you should undersell the degree to which enid's father's separation from a woman who was apparently very important in his life for a long time Mm -hmm. uh is important to that story i think that it really underlines the degree to which like by the end she has nobody that she she doesn't feel to some degree rejected or abandoned by mm. uh her her dad is played by bob balaban who just can never have enough screen time <laughs> in any movie as yeah, far as i'm concerned i'm ready to just watch the bob balaban show where he just hangs around and is him <laughs> but she seems to have a like a not necessarily super close relationship with him but a very dependent one where she de- she, she depends on him being there yeah and when he very gently goes out and starts spending time with a woman that he who seems reasonably nice and who he feels 
clearly strongly about as gentle as he tries to be with her about it, it clearly wrecks her. Like, there's no reason that we really see in the movie for her to hate this woman so much, except that this woman comes between her and her father. And I find that what sort of watching that play out as they kind of try to tiptoe around her and be kind to her, and it still hurts her, just sort of fascinating. And then sort of watching Lady Bird experience what her parents are going through and in both interpret it and experience it in a very different way, I think is equally interesting and effective. But I think in, you could also say in both cases that Eden and Lady Bird are being unfair <laughs> to, oh, yeah. their, to their parents and and, and to, to Terry Gar, I guess, who, who would not be a parent. But is... Although she she does make that point about, uh, like, that's, that's our only indication, I think, of how long she was in their life, mm-hmm. is she says something about, like, you know, I feel partially responsible for how you came out. Mm-hmm. Like, it's great to see you having turned into a young woman. Sure, that's true. I I, kind of like how the film only sketches that partly. It doesn't really go all the way with it. Agreed. I mean, mean, you're talking about parental uh, relationships in the house. But in Lady Bird, there is another, like, domestic pairing in her life, which is her brother and her brother's Mm. uh, girlfriend, which is another, like, interesting... It's not a aspirational relationship by any means, but it is like something that you can see kind of like mirror itself in how she approaches relationships with other people. And she and they see her mother in a different light. They're a little older, mm-hmm. and and uh, they're they've been part of the working world, and they can understand uh, her mother's perspective a lot with a lot more clarity than than Lady Bird can at this point in her life. Just their presence in that home says a lot about their parents, about Marion in particular, like that they are providing shelter to their unemployed son and his girlfriend who is kicked out of her home. You know, like there's... He's not unemployed. They've both got jobs. (laughs) That's right. I'm I'm sorry. Um, Meagerly employed. (laughs) (laughs) They have very important jobs standing behind the same cash register in an otherwise abandoned store, gently touching each other's facial rings. Yes, as you do. Um, But I mean, I think it it does say something about Marion that she does that. And like it says something about the kind of parent she is and how that doesn't like get through to Lady Bird or isn't noticed by Lady Bird. I do think that's a really interesting scene where Shelley spells out to Lady Bird, like, look, I think your mother's cool. She's been mm-hmm. very kind to me. And it's very clear that Shelley comes from a much more oppressive and unpleasant home that she was kicked out of. And the fact that she has such a different perspective, I think, is is really interesting. I hadn't really thought about the degree to which her relationship with Miguel is kind of a, like, almost a proto-parental relationship. You know, it's given, given Lady Bird's the troubled love life, essentially mm-hmm. the fact that she's got this this couple like literally living in her household that seems to be like a stable, happy relationship of very simpatico people. It does become a really interesting model, especially when her parents aren't that. It's almost like Gerwig is saying, you know, it, it is okay to, to be in a relationship. Like <laughs> it, not all relationships are fraught and miserable. Before we kind of close out, I wanted to address a, a big question that hangs over both Edith and Lady Bird's mind which is what does the future hold i mean they're they're both either graduating high school seniors or about to graduate and they're clearly thinking about what the next step is and uh there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with that how does that compare and contrast i'm pretty sure that enid gets on that bus goes all the way back to the bus and sits down between a very uncomfortable looking young man and woman the woman's wearing a bridal <laughs> gown and a veil 
the man is like still carrying the remnants of a splintered cross. They look super uncomfortable and really relieved to have somebody sit down between them. And then they head forward into an uncertain future together. You've done it. You've, uh, you've uh, cracked it wide open, as uh, they say in Pollock. Well, yeah. What is that? The road is that the road to uh, uncertainty or transcendence, or where does that where does that road go? I'd really rather see it as the road to an uncertain future than what she literally describes it, where she's like, I mean, she's she's getting on the golden Cadillac at the end of uh, the apple and flying off into the sky. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more interesting if she has no idea where she's going, but she's getting on a, a literal bus out of town mm-hmm. and she's going to take it as it comes. Than it is if it is just a a giant metaphorical magic bus. Can we, though, say that it is a rare destiny that she is pursuing in a way, though? I mean, the, 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 the fact that it's an out-of-service bus that this guy has been waiting for for a really long time and that, that isn't supposed to turn up. I mean, it's a, it's a special bus. It's not just some regular old bus. Is the bus a metaphor? I, I think the bus is a metaphor. I just do don't you, want the bus to be a metaphor. What do you think it, well, the bus is a metaphor for? I don't know. It's probably a metaphor for death. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this old guy sitting around waiting for a bus to come, and then it comes, and he's gone forever. Ah, uh, right. And <laughs> her, as I say, her whole thing about, you know, she just wants to get, get on a bus and go away from the world and never be seen again. Like, that that's, oh, sounds boy. like death. I just, what I'm saying is, I don't, I don't want, want to that, that to metaphor. be it. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't want to be that. Um, but hmm. it, it was kind of hard for me to ignore that possibility. But to go back to the comparison between these two films, like, these are both characters who just want to be away. They want to be away from the situation they are in now. Mm-hmm. One character has a very distinct idea of how she's going to do that and she does not deviate from that plan ladybird knows that she is going to go to school out east and that is how she is going to escape enid just knows that she's going to escape but there is no i think greater uncertainty in enid's future than there is in ladybirds like i mean in the end of that film like she's at college but there's no sense that like she's gonna make it all four years you, you know or she knows what she's doing like it's the beginning of the rest of her life it's like we it's a very, Francis ha. Yeah, right? <laughs> she's gonna screw up a lot right it's, it's a very like now what kind oh, of that paris kind of trip feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that paris trip and Francis ha is still the saddest thing <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, to some degree, I, I, it's funny, the place where these two movies most conflate for me is the idea that Lady Bird so desperately wants to go to an art college. One of those liberal arts colleges is how she puts it. She wants to go to a, a place where art happens. And it's some kind of vague, undefined idea of like what art is. And she seems to be like a fairly artsy person, just judging by her room, you know, which is full of like fragments of writing and poetry written on the walls and uh, all of these like interesting collages. But she doesn't really express a, a deep burning interest in art. In fact, she walks away from theater because she doesn't think that she's good at it or that she's respected in it. So it's interesting to see like Enid's grasping for approval from like the the only living artistic uh, role model in her life who's producing terrible art and, <laughs> and pushing Enid to produce terrible art. While we have another character who's literally crossing the country to go to what she sees as an arty or artistic school without having any kind of like clear defined goals for that. See, now I'm thinking about what would Enid make of of, uh, <laughs> of Lady Bird's art. <laughs> uh, probably would hold it in contempt as she does many, many things. 
I wonder uh, what they would make of each other. I mean, I think by the end, the the like jaded, self-aware ladybird who's drinking way too much booze but identifying as Christine at this point might just about be ready to tackle Enid. Tackle her literally? No, or? no, no, no. Like t- tackle a conversation with yeah, her. Yeah, I think crumbling. I think I think Enid would cut her down pretty pretty swiftly. I honestly think they would get get along very well. That is some fanfic I would like to read. Some crossover <laughs> fanfic. I will read that fanfic. You can do that fanfiction <laughs> on your own. Uh, Ghost World is available for rent through various streaming services. It is available via Blu-ray on a particularly great Criterion edition with a commentary track, deleted scenes, and a fine liner notes essay by Howard Hampton. As of this recording, uh, Lady Bird notched the highest per screen average of any film in 2017 on its opening weekend. Nice. So it should expand and stick around all winter long. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So, Thor Ragnarok is in theaters now, and I enjoyed the hell out of it, but if you're at all inclined to see Thor Ragnarok, you probably don't need me to push you to do so. So that is not my recommendation. I am going to use this as an opportunity to recommend an earlier film from Thor Ragnarok's director, Taika Waititi, aka my director crush of the moment. I believe we previously recommended Waititi's last film, Hunt for the Wilder People, on this podcast, so I want to go a little further back to his 2010 film, Boy. Uh, I recently caught up with this one and was thoroughly charmed by it, and it only intensified my feeling that Waititi, who wrote and directed this one, is a really special and distinctive storyteller. It's set in 1984 and follows a rambunctious Maori preteen known as Boy, who lives on a farm in New Zealand with his grandmother and cousins, and who idolizes Michael Jackson and his absentee father in equal measure. When his father, played by Waititi himself, returns home, Boy has to reckon with the reality of the man who's become a mythical figure in his mind, and it's hilarious and just a little bit heartbreaking to watch father and son ineptly figure out how they, as well as Boy's younger brother, uh, relate to each other. Uh, It's a really wonderful movie that highlights much of the filmmaking sensibility that Waititi brought to Thor on a much smaller and more personal scale. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free there, and it's easily rentable via the usual streaming services. Boy. Okay. I've not seen Boy. I have seen uh, the the previous two films and enjoyed them, so we should check that out. Yeah, if you'd like to hunt for the wilder people, I can't imagine you not liking Boy. I I had mixed feelings about (laughs) the wilder people, but... Get out. Uh, I know. It's, just, it's a little cutesy for my taste. Tasha, but, you will love Boy. <laughs> but, uh, but. I've been meaning to catch up with it for a long time because uh, I'm such a fan of Watiti's, yeah. as a matter of fact. I, you know, I, I might as well just jump in, Scott. I was seriously planning on uh, talking about Hunt for the Wilder People again. <laughs> So Thor Ragnarok, if you're planning on seeing Thor Ragnarok, you've probably already seen Thor Ragnarok, but I'm still going to throw in and say you should see Thor Ragnarok because it's a really fun movie. I mean, I think anybody who loathes superheroes or uh, this franchise in general is not, this is not going to be a movie that changes your mind necessarily, but I have talked to a number of people about how much I liked it and encountered like surprise and shock from them. And these are nerd people in my life, you know, who do like superheroes. 
but who, like me, were really down on the first two Thor movies mm-hmm. and didn't care for them. So Same here. Yeah. Even if you didn't like Thor The Dark World, and I don't blame you, even if you think that the first Thor was the weakest of the MCU movies, and I don't blame you, see Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. But if you like Thor Ragnarok, I really think you're going to like Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> However... <laughs> I've written about that one extensively and my love for it. And I believe that I was probably the one that recommended it earlier. Yes. So I want to recommend something else, which is a little film called Radius, uh, which I saw at Austin's Fantastic Fest. Um, it's directed by a married couple, Carolyn LeBrush and Steve Leonard. I interviewed them at Fantastic Fest, and hopefully that interview uh, will be up later this week. I also have a review of it that I did out of the fest at The Verge. And it's an interesting film to try to talk up because I kind of don't want to tell people too much about it. I will give you the logline, sort of where it starts, is a man crawls out of a car wreck and discovers that anything living that comes within 50 feet of him instantly drops dead. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a movie in some ways about isolation. It's a movie also about responsibility. Like how responsible is he for keeping people alive when people keep going out of their way to enter this radius of death and drop dead? It's sort of a Twilight Zone movie. And a lot of things happen from there, and a lot of them are very surprising. And this movie had one twist that just just about had my jaw dropping on the floor at Fantastic Fest, which I thought was really cool. But I don't want to spoil anything. Do not watch the trailer. The trailer will spoil the first, uh, I don't know, three big plot twists. <laughs> but if, you're, if you enjoy Twilight Zone-esque stories, if you enjoy like small, independent, thought-driven science fiction uh, stories, I think that you will dig this movie. It's on VOD as of, I believe, November the 10th. Um, just in a like on a variety of platforms. Uh, it's I'm told it'll eventually be on Netflix, but they didn't have a date for that just yet. Um, but fairly soon, you should be f- able to find it fairly widely. Uh, it's called Radius, and I think it's really fun. Neat, Scott. Scott. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to cheat a, a lot here, not even a little, a lot <laughs> by, recommending, by recommending something that <laughs> at the time this podcast uh, was recorded hasn't happened yet, uh, but it will be available to to all of us by the time it drops. It's a new podcast from Maximum Fun called Switchblade Sisters, hosted by LA Weekly's lead film critic April Wolf. Uh, the premise of the show is that April brings on uh, women filmmakers to discuss the genre film of their choice, which is, come on, this is like the show is, I, I, is made for me. Um, the, Shut the, up and take my money. The, the premiere episode has Emily Gordon, uh, the co-writer of The Big Sick, talking about Bone Tomahawk, the, the feature debut by S. Craig Zoller, who recently did my beloved Brawl on Cell Block 99. Uh, feature guests include Karen Kusama, who directed Girl Fight and Invitation, Heather Matarazzo, uh, who is best known as the lead in Welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, maybe the show will be a total disaster, but I love the concept and April's criticism, and Maximum Fun sets a high standard for podcasts. So I'm looking forward to that. And if you need something for me to recommend that actually exists, I would recommend the Jack Hill movie. Switchblade Sisters, which the title uh, <laughs> references in which uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, helped reissue a couple of decades ago. All right. So, I'm both looking forward to that and looking forward to it getting big enough that they get Patty Jenkins on. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, she, she's in L.A. She can get any money she wants, especially if this thing takes off. That is intriguing enough to me that I will allow your cheating. It is che- like, this is <laughs> things that we've experienced in the interim. It, it, nothing was... The only thing that was experienced was this really awesome trailer that uh, Ava recorded Gosh, uh, God, to promote this Do you podcast. think there's anything we could do to help this podcast take off? What, just by recommending it on the show? Oh, oh you know, and subscribing and listening to it. What, oh, yeah. what was the name of that thing again? Oh, it's called Switchblade Sisters. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out November 28th, November 30th. Tasha, what are we discussing? So London-born playwright, screenwriter, and film director Martin McDonough only has a few films under his belt. 2004's Six Shooter, 2008's In Bruges, 2012's Seven Psychopaths, and now 2017's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, an extremely dark, profane small-town drama about a woman on a crusade. Fargo star Frances McDormand, one of my favorite actresses of all time, stars as Mildred, a foul-mouthed, foul-tempered family woman whose teenage daughter was raped and murdered, a crime that was largely ignored by a police force headed by characters played by Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell. She puts up a series of billboards calling the town's attention to their failings, and then the entire town takes sides. At the suggestion of our old friend and non-podcast listener, Noel Murray, we're pairing it with David Mamet's 2000 comedy, State in Maine, starring McDormand's Fargo partner, William H. Macy, as an embattled director trying to complete an indie film with a hapless crew in a small Vermont town. As Noel notes, both films are full of quotable dialogue, they both have casts packed with top-tier character actors in quirky roles, and they're both set in small towns that aren't as idyllic as they seem. But they're also both expressly about the way individual people's failings can make a group effort fall apart, and how creative solutions and individual struggle can rescue a failing enterprise. They're both painful but brilliantly acted movies, and they're both immensely lively, entertaining, and surprising in the writing. I'm excited by that pairing, so thank you, Noel. Uh, for that suggestion. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Ghost World, Lady Bird, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episodes, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. You can find me at the culture section at vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? You can find me leading the film and TV section and writing about film and TV at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tosh Robinson. You can occasionally find me writing about books at NPR Books. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work at, at such yum-worthy uh, publications <laughs> as uh, The New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture, uh, Variety. And uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Now, this would normally be the time we'd thank Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance producing the show. But Colin has stepped down after a great two-year run for us. Without eulogizing him, he's very much alive. You'll be, you'll, you'll be uh, happy to know. I did want to say a word about how much Colin has meant to us. Uh, we worked with Colin on every venture we've done together. First at AV Club, then at The Dissolve, and finally here on The Next Picture Show. He's not the type of guy who calls attention to himself, which is a blessing in a quiet <laughs> office setting, let me tell you. Uh, but we always knew that when we gave him something to do, he would get it done and done well every single time. And so thanks to Colin, the Animal Griffith, for his assistance in producing the show for as long as he did. And best of luck to him on future ventures. Thank you, Colin. And thanks this week to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcast and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Sweet like Rock and sweet 
Come and tell 